Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the people of New York versus Donald Trump. Today was an historic day in lower Manhattan as America learned the full extent of the allegations against the former president. And we got a look at criminal defendant Trump in photos that will live in infamy. The first American president to be charged with a crime, defendant Donald J. Trump, is seen here surrounded by his legal team, a photo Trump most certainly did not want you to see. It's nothing short of a remarkable image of the new reality for the man who raged in all caps on social media ahead of his day in court before surrendering for arrest and processing in Manhattan criminal court. Trump was uncharacteristically grim and silent while entering the courtroom, ignoring questions from reporters before pleading not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. The now unsealed indictment lays out the 34 counts in the form of numerous entries made with, quote, intent to defraud and intent to commit another crime and aid and conceal the commission thereof. The indictment isn't explicit about those other crimes that Trump tried to conceal, but it is laid out clearly in the prosecutor's statement of facts as a scheme involving Trump and America Media Incorporated CEO David Pecker. Noting that in June 2015, defendant Trump announced his candidacy for president and soon after, in August 2015, met with lawyer A, Michael Cohen and Pecker at Trump Tower. At that meeting, Pecker agreed to help with the defendant's campaign, saying that he would act as the eyes and ears of the campaign by looking out for negative stories about the defendant and alerting lawyer A, Cohen, before the stories were published. The AMI CEO also agreed to publish negative stories about the defendant's competitors for the election. The broader scheme played out in three parts. First, a payoff to a Trump Tower doorman, alleging in November 2015, the AMI CEO learned that a former Trump Tower doorman was trying to sell information regarding a child that the defendant had allegedly fathered out of wedlock. At the CEO's direction, AMI negotiated and signed an agreement to pay the doorman $30,000 to acquire exclusive rights to the story. The second part, suppressing woman one, presumably Playboy playmate Karen McDougal. Quote, the defendant, the AMI CEO and lawyer A, had a series of discussions about who should pay off woman one to secure her silence. AMI ultimately paid $150,000 to woman one in exchange for her agreement not to speak out about the alleged sexual relationship. Prosecutors say, quote, the defendant did not want this information to become public because he was concerned about the effect it could have on his candidacy. In other words, it was clearly intended to influence the 2016 election. Then there's a third part, the hush money payment to buy Stormy Daniels silence after the release of the Access Hollywood tape in October 2016. 
Quote, with pressure mounting and the election approaching, the defendant agreed to the payoff and directed Cohen to proceed. Cohen discussed the deal with the defendant and Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg. The defendant Trump Trump did not want to make the $130,000 payment himself and asked Cohen and Weisselberg to find a way to make the payment. The final part of the scheme, prosecutors say Trump arranged to reimburse Cohen for the payoffs that he made on Trump's behalf, saying Cohen submitted 10 similar monthly invoices by email to the Trump organization for the remaining months in 2017. Each invoice falsely stated that it was being submitted pursuant to the retainer agreement and falsely requested payment for services rendered for a month of 2017. Well, in fact, there was no such retainer agreement. And lawyer A, Cohen, was not being paid for services rendered in any month of 2017. After the twice impeached former president's arraignment, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg addressed reporters about the importance of pursuing the case against Trump. Under New York state law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and an intent to conceal another crime. That is exactly what this case is about. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. We have a distinct and strong, I would say profound, independent interest in New York State. This is the business capital of the world. Uh, We regularly uh, do cases involving false business statements. For Trump, the ultimate indignity is that he got away with the Access Hollywood tape politically, but he will now have to pay for it legally at the hands of Manhattan prosecutors and the people of the state of New York. Joining me now is Hugo Lowell, political investigations reporter for The Guardian, who was in the courtroom today for Trump's arraignment. Katie Fang, attorney and host of The Katie Fang Show on MSNBC. And Charles Coleman Jr., former Brooklyn prosecutor, civil rights attorney, and MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you all for being here, Hugo. Uh, I, I, I am very excited to hear from you. Please talk about the atmosphere in the court today, what you saw, uh, and specifically what you observed about Donald Trump today. It was extremely tense. Uh, When we got to the courtroom, there was probably about 20 court security officers, probably around five to 10 Secret Service officers, and we were waiting for a while. And first, the uh, prosecution team walked in, and then Trump's defense counsel walked in. And then Trump walked in. And when Trump came into the courtroom, he looked particularly angry, visibly shaken, and the most gaunt that I've seen him. And it was... It was really striking. I've never seen him look so, uh, I guess, afraid, and I've never seen him look so serious uh, as he did today. And it was striking how all of this was on his face, even as he showed no discernible emotion throughout proceedings. And I think principally it was the result of him walking into the courtroom, being read the criminal charges, and that actually hitting him. You know, we spoke to advisors when he learned about the indictment, and he he was kind of hit then. 
But when he actually walked into the courtroom, I think he was hit to a whole new degree and the gravity of the moment really sunk in. And just to, to stay with you for a moment, Hugo, I mean, you have covered Donald Trump. You've covered him at, at uh, Trump Tower. You've covered him at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, you, what you're describing is a very different Donald Trump than the one that, you know, people who watched The Apprentice or watched him as president experienced. You know, this is a man who is excellent at uh, being performative, about being the star of his own show. And he has been talking for weeks about how he wanted to be the star of his own show this time, too. You know, he was talking about how he wanted to be handcuffed and, oh, you know, with all this bravado about how he wanted his hands specifically behind his back and should I smile for the cameras and, you know, I want to be a martyr. But when it actually came to the moment, he was really drawn. He was really gaunt. Uh, and there was none of the performative stuff that you saw kind of in the lead up to this arraignment. Once he made his way into the courtroom where there were no TV cameras and there were only the photographers at the start, that was the tone that he set and that was the demeanor that he had. And I've never seen anything like it. Uh, let, me, let me come to the table for a moment because, you know, back to attorneys here, you know, it's like when they say in boxing, you, you really don't know anything until you get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. Then you really find out which God you serve, right? You find things out. And I mean, Donald Trump has, for his entire life, had someone fixing things for him. He always had a fixer. He and always in, wanted a Roy Cohn, right? He had a Roy Cohn. Yep. He had Michael Cohen. He had Alan Weisselberg. He's always had someone to fix it. So even for Donald Trump, who's gotten away arguably with committing a few crimes in his time over the course of his life, think, suddenly it's different when you're in court. Think about it this way, Joy. You're talking about someone who went to a Mueller investigation. Nothing happened. You went through an impeachment, number one, nothing happened. You went through impeachment, number two, nothing happened. All of these formal proceedings that have taken place have not led to any actual consequence. But during each of those, you still had the status to be in control of the institutions that were investigating you. You still had a certain level of power over the people who were making the decisions. Now you are not in that arena anymore. You are in an arena where you have no control. You can't control the narrative. You can't control the actors and you can't control the system. And so those are new things for Donald Trump to experience. And the fact that he is a litigant in myriad civil cases has nothing to do with this because because this is a space where you will lose your freedom. Yeah. And that's something that he hasn't experienced before. Ever before. I mean, there was the, all the talk of him putting out like a fake version of the mugshot that they could sell on T-shirts. I mean, it, it gets real when it's a real mugshot. I, I want to talk about the case, though. I, I found the, it fascinating just to read through it. Sure. Um, and so I just want to go through this with you guys. So the, the understanding that I have here is that very simply, to put it in very simple terms, you have this agreement between these three parties, AMI, David Pecker, which is the people who published the... Uh, the, the, the National Enquirer, yes. uh, Michael Cohen uh, and Donald Trump. And they say, we're going to squash any negative stories. If it's an right. illicit child you didn't have, we'll pay $30,000 to this person. This person says they had an affair, they get 150. This person says they had an affair, they get 130. Then we'll reimburse and pretend that there's this shit. We make a shell company that ain't real. Two and different companies. Two companies. They pay out, right? And then we reimburse Cohen and we say, oh, this was a retainer. Ain't a retainer. This, to me, reads like a pretty standard thing that gets prosecuted in New York. It's, it doesn't seem extraordinary to me. It, it, all you have to do is plug and play a defendant, 
So for all the drama that this is, former President Donald Trump, he's really just jail number Donald Trump now. That's why the judge referred to him as Mr. Trump, didn't refer to him as former President Trump. This is what Alvin Brack said at the presser this afternoon. This is the bread and butter of the New York DA's office. And your timeline is right, and that's really important in what's laid out in the statement of facts and the indictment. August 2015, that agreement, Pecker, Cohen, and Trump. Catch and kill, no negative information. Why? Because I'm running for president of the United States. This is Donald Trump. Doorman gets paid off 30000 October 2015. June 2016, Carrie McDougal gets 150. Everybody's quiet. Still haven't heard anything. September 2016, the audio tape is done between Michael Cohen and Donald Trump. Trump's telling Cohen, pay cash. What do you mean this whole setup, this arrangement with Weisselberg and stuff? Just pay the cash, right? October 7th, 2016, the Access Hollywood tape comes out. Everything blows up. We're on the eve of the election. There's drama. The evangelicals may be getting a little bit nervous. So on October 27th, 2016, Stormy Daniels gets her 130. It was all for the purpose of being able to win and influence the outcome of this election. And that's why it's so important for people to understand. You want to talk about an election being stolen? You want to talk about stolen election? Donald Trump stole that election in 2016. But for this information really coming out then, I honestly believe he bought his election. That's what he did. And, and the, I mean, the, the issue is, I mean, so, something like 16 United States senators withdrew their endorsements from Donald Trump. Right. Uh, people like Reince Priebus, who was the head of the RNC, said, you shouldn't run. Right. Back off. So there was actual proof that there were people who were saying this maybe maybe ain't going to work. We're not going to back you. So he had a motive to want to do this. And, and he, he seems to have put in place sort of an insurance policy to say that there will be no human witnesses right. right to his sexual corruption. Now, this timeline that Katie has just laid out, along with everything you've said, is going to be critically important down the stretch when you're talking about a trial. And one of the reasons for that is you're going to have to basically connect the notion that these payments were made to influence or specifically under New York state law to pro- to promote or prevent an election. Basically, that's the underlying charge or one of the charges that Bragg alluded to during his presser. The reason that that becomes so important is because that's going to be the hook, if you will, that helps him get to the felony. Now, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, you're using a misdemeanor to get to a felony and this may not be worth it. And to those people, I respond, you cannot say on one hand that we will prosecute anyone who has broken the law and hold everyone accountable, but then cherry pick which laws are worthy of actually going forward on. Alvin Bragg has a job as the Manhattan district attorney here in New York, and that is to enforce the law. Donald Trump has broken the law, and that's what Alvin Bragg is doing. It may not be the sexiest case. It may not be the most glamorous case, but Alvin Bragg is doing what Alvin Bragg has been elected to do. And it's, it's a basic case. There is a piece in this um, indictment. I'm going to go back to Hugo in a moment, but I, I'm going to come back to you guys. Where in February, I believe, of 2018, Trump invites David Pecker to the White House specifically to thank him for helping the campaign. Thank you. That's for part of thank the indictment. for the campaign help. Thank right you for there. the campaign help. So yeah. he admits it. Correct. And that's a big part of what Alvin Bragg will be using, along with the timeline that you laid out and sort of just at each step, how all of these things were directly connected to the campaign in order to establish the overall legal theory. I know a number of people were wondering before we got this indictment, what was going to be the thing in addition to the actual payments that was going to help him get to the to get to the felony? And what was the underlying charge? This was not necessarily what we were expecting, but it is a viable legal theory. And I will add, Joy, for people who may sort of not necessarily love to hear this, 
It's also a defensible theory as well. I think that Donald Trump's attorneys got off relatively light today with what they thought they might have been facing with respect to potential tax fraud or something even worse around the federal charge if Alvin Bragg could have made that out. But he didn't. He told he chose the safe route. This is a relatively tight and thinly read, uh, 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 threaded in uh, indictment. And I think that it is also defensible. I'm going to come back to that in just one second. I want to go to Hugo for one moment, because take us back for just a moment, because that is sort of an important piece of this, Hugo, is what was the mindset of the Trump campaign at the time that all of these shoes were dropping? I think there was also a controversy about him calling a former Miss Universe a pig. And, you know, there was all of this question about whether women voters, and that's mentioned in this indictment, there was a concern that women voters would walk away. What was the state of the campaign at that point? Right. And, and this is going to be crucial to the trial because, you know, the Trump campaign has uh, and the Trump legal team has long said, look, you know, Trump was always going to be killing these stories because he was a public figure. And, you know, he had a history of trying to kill these stories, uh, you know, since since he became famous. But there are certain points in this indictment that, you know, we hadn't necessarily anticipated, which I think makes it very clear that a lot of these specific payments to Stormy Daniels, for instance, in particular, were tied to the presidential campaign. I think this was really notable. For instance, when Michael Cohen, you know, told uh, David Peck, you know, not to publish stories until the election was over. There's right. a lot of election-related activity, a lot of election-related testimony that Michael Cohen and David Peck, who I think will be star witnesses in this trial because of what they know and the conversations they had about holding stuff until the election was over. I mean, there, there, there is, there's testimony from Michael Cohen that he goes into the White House into and meets Oval. with Trump in the Oval to confirm that he's going to get paid back. And then I want to ask you, Katie, specifically about this. This is a statement of fact about Cohen and a pressure campaign because it's, to your point, something that doesn't seem to have been charged. The FBI executed a search warrant on Lawyer A, Cohen's residences and office. In the months that followed, the defendants and others engaged in a public and private pressure campaign to ensure that Lawyer A did not cooperate with law enforcement in the federal investigation. On the day of the FBI searches, Lawyer A called to speak with the defendant to let him know what had occurred. In a return call, the defendant told Lawyer A, stay strong. Are you surprised that there was not an additional charge related to trying to pressure Michael Cohen not to tell the truth? Witness intimidation. Right. Witness happened. We're talking Something about like Robert that. Costello here, right? The one witness that Trump brought as his defense before this grand jury. Clearly, the grand jury said this wasn't that important. Listen, I think part of that speaks to the challenge that Michael Cohen's credibility is going to have, right? And even though we know that Michael Cohen's the only one who's actually done time for what's happened here, I think that by putting the Costello and the Cohen kind of thing together, it may not have been literally worth it. Why? Because it doesn't necessarily fit with the cleanliness of this particular indictment. If you look at the 34 counts, they cite to section 175.10. Here's the crime. Here's the date. Here's how it was booked. It's falsification of a business record. I think if you added that one additional witness tampering, witness intimidation, you muddy you the waters. The, you, I think you add the drama. But here's the and here's the challenge. And every time this comes up, and I, I think I, I feel like I debate this with lawyers. I'm not a lawyer, so maybe I'm not qualified to do it. Every time right someone brings up, I mean, if every time someone brings up the Cohen credibility thing, here's my problem with that. Everything Michael Cohen has said has turned out to be accurate. Sure, sure. Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to crimes, all of which, except for one, were related to doing something at the behest of one person, Donald Trump. He's the only person who benefited from it. He's the person that Michael Cohen did it for. And in this indictment, it says they created the shell company to pay the, at, at his at his behest. That's Michael Cohen doing that for Donald Trump. Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to it. AMI admitted to the feds that it was a crime, admitted it was for the campaign. If three people commit a crime, 
and two people admit that it's a crime and one goes to prison for it, the third person also committed a crime. I don't see an issue with Michael well, Cohen. I see the, an issue with Donald Trump. Well, the credibility issue is one. Katie and I have had this conversation. As former prosecutors, we can tell you we are no strangers to trying cases with witnesses whose testimony is vital to our case and who have credibility issues. What you do with that as a prosecutor is you basically say, this person was so close to the action. This person was so close to the action. He was doing it. The best one to know. Know. Who else would know? Who else would know? He was and part so of that's, it. That's how you overcome that. I will say that Michael Cohen is not doing Alvin Bragg any favors with the amount of talking that he's doing. And that came up from the defense in the hearing today where they were talking about the fact that as the judge was talking about Donald Trump being on social media and talking and saying what he was saying, they brought up the fact that Michael Cohen had been on the steps of the court and talking about what was going on with the case and with the grand jury. And that is something that as a prosecutor would make me nervous. And one thing really quickly, the discovery in this case the defense is going to get the grand jury testimony. Right. There's yeah. no depots. There's no depositions. Right. So they're going to get all the grand jury testimony. They're yeah. going to get the witness lists, and they're going to have to figure it out. And the second thing is, if they file a motion to dismiss and they lose, no yeah. interlocutory appeal, meaning they're not going to be able to stave going to trial. I could do this for an hour, but we, but I can't. I, I got to go. We got to pay for all this stuff. And I will say one last thing, and then I'm going to definitely go to commercial. This should not even be Alvin Bragg's problem. This should have been done by the feds. The feds had this case. They booted the case under William Barr, and now they've booted it to two state prosecutors, including in Georgia, making them do the work. That should have been done by the DOJ. That's my editorial opinion. This should be a federal case. Hugo Lowell, who was in the courtroom for us today, Katie Fang and Charles Coleman are legal eagles. Charles Coleman Jr. We got to make sure that dad at home gets his honorific. Up next on the readout, Trump's arraignment was met with protests, counter protests and a blistering broadside from a New York congressman aimed at the MAGA fans who actually showed up to support Trump. The readout continues after this. Much like the twice impeached former president's four years in office, today was a three ring circus. Earlier in the day, Trump supporters in lower Manhattan seemed to outnumber anti-Trump protesters. But as the day wore on, Trump supporters appeared to be outnumbered. Long Island Congressman George Santos, who was under multiple investigations, showed up to pledge his allegiance to Trump, perhaps hoping that Trump returns to the White House and gives him a pardon. But Santos promptly left after he was met with a swarm of reporters and counter protesters. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene was also there, but promptly bailed after her insults were drowned out by shouts and whistles. Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York showed up to remind the Congresswoman what the job that she gets paid for in taxpayer money actually is. Marjorie Taylor Greene needs to take her ass back to Washington and do something about gun violence. Do something about affordable housing. Do something about childhood poverty. Do something about climate change. Do your freaking job, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You don't need to be in New York City talking that nonsense. Go back to your district. You're not, what are you doing here? You're here for politics. You're here because you want to be VP. Wow. Well, when Trump arrived at the courthouse, he was greeted by a chorus of demonstrators chanting, no one is above the law. Trump is not above the law. While defendant Trump has never had that many fans in New York City, frankly, he has created a massive national following of supporters and politicians who pledge blind allegiance to him no matter what. That wasn't always the case, though. During his 2016 campaign, Trump was facing challenges from Republicans up until the day his very no of his very nomination at the convention. 
Today's indictment shows that he and his campaign wanted to secure Republican support at all costs, especially after the release of the Access Hollywood tape, which led 16 Republicans to jump ship. Ultimately, none of that really mattered. He was elected president and he skirted accountability up until today. The real irony here, though, is that he is in legal jeopardy because he wanted Republicans to like him. Little did he realize they just want to be just like him. Joining me now is Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor. And Charlie, I asked my producers to look this up, and it is kind of amazing to me that after all that has happened with Donald Trump and what he's dealing with now, he did all of that because he was afraid Republicans would ditch him because of Access Hollywood. His polling numbers went up after Access Hollywood. He was actually more popular with Republican voters in October. It was October 7th that Access Hollywood happened. He was up 48% support before, 52 and 51 percent after. It did dip a little bit back to 48 um, by November, but it didn't hurt him at all. Isn't it ironic that he went through all of this and may now face jail for something he didn't even have to really do? Well, I don't know that that's true because I remember uh, October 7, 2016 very, very well. And that was really in many ways a pivotal day for Republican politics. It was a pivotal day for American politics because everything was hanging on in our razor's edge. You had Republicans who were backing away from him. There was a sense that if there was one more shoe, one more bad story that everything would would fall would fall apart. As we know, what happened was um, nothing really happened. Um, the all the Republicans who had pulled their endorsements scurried back to him, and that was really a turning point. It was an indication of how much the Republican Party would swallow what they would be willing to go along with, uh, and they've never really recovered from from that. But. Now you put it in context of the payoff of Stormy Daniels, and the timeline is really interesting to me. Uh, the amount of uh, panic and concern in Trump world after that Access Hollywood video, what if that story had come out in late October 2016? They thought it would be extremely damaging. They thought it might be devastating, and that's why they paid her off. Fast forward to today where um, Donald Trump for you know all these years thought that he pulled it off. He thought that he got away with it. And today we found out that he has not gotten away with it. And there, are, in fact, are consequences to all of that. So, you know, thinking back on that particular day, it is so interesting. Donald Trump is the only man in American presidential uh, history who could pay off two porn stars and have people think that it was trivial. But this was a conspiracy and a cover up in the crucial days of a presidential campaign. So there's going to be a lot of attempts to spin this as something minor or tawdry. But if you remember what was actually going on there, this was a decisive moment in American politics. Well, I mean, the thing is that the the reason I say that is that the poll was not of Republican politicians. Republican politicians were walking away. But what they didn't realize is that what they were leading was a base that was more akin to a Marjorie Taylor Greene. At the base of the Republican Party, I think there was a schism they didn't even recognize. The voters didn't care. 
Okay, they didn't. They right. cared. And people like Reince Priebus, who you know very well from Wisconsin, was like, right. whoa, you probably shouldn't keep running. At the end of the day, who controls the party? People like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Joe Tacopina today had the nerve right. to get up and say he wasn't posing with a bat like he wanted to beat Alvin Bragg. He was just posing with an American bat to show an American made bat. The, the excuse making, that's what comes up from the base. I guess that's what I find ironic. They didn't understand well, yeah. their voters didn't care yeah. about Trump's lasciviousness. Yes, but maybe there were enough swing voters who might have cared. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, Mar we wouldn't have Marjorie Taylor Greene. She wouldn't be a thing today Santos. if it wasn't for what happened after October 7th. That's that right. world that was created by caving in after Access Hollywood. And now we know all of the attempts, the payoffs, the hush money and everything that Republicans were willing to uh, accept. And it is really, when you think about it, you know, one of the many sort of fundamental, basic, big lies that that under undergirds all of this Trumpian era that we're in. And so, you know, you you, you mentioned uh, Reince Priebus, because one of the reasons why I remember that night is because I was texting back and forth with Reince Priebus, and he was telling me that he was in tears, that he was trying to talk Donald Trump into getting out of the race. Well, we know what happened. He eventually made his peace with Donald Trump. Yep. He went to work for Donald Trump. He became one of the enablers and rationalizers. And that was, in many ways, exactly what the rest of the Republican Party did. So yeah. I remember what that night was like. And believe it or not, I think things could have gone a different direction, but of course they didn't. And now we know one of the reasons why it did not. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't it's not just Kevin McCarthy that works for Marjorie Taylor Greene. All of the Republican establishment works for Marjorie Taylor Greene and her ilk. We saw that circus today. Now. That's the base of the party at this point. Charlie Sykes, thank you very much. Up next, a refreshing look at karmic justice and that side of today's big events with Youssef Salam, one of the exonerated Central Park Five. We'll be right back. Donald Trump has been railing about how unfairly the justice system is supposedly treating him, when in reality, that treatment is actually pretty cushy compared to how people of color have been treated by the justice system for decades. At today's arraignment, Trump was not in handcuffs or leg shackles. He didn't have a mugshot taken. He didn't even have to sit in a holding cell. That is nowhere near the worst of what the criminal justice system has to offer. A prime example of what inhumane treatment does look like is a case Donald Trump is quite familiar with, involving the now exonerated Central Park Five, who were wrongfully convicted of the rape of a white jogger more than 30 years ago. You will remember Trump took out a full page ad in four major New York City newspapers calling for the state to adopt the death penalty and use it on the teens, something he has never apologized for. Mr. President, will you apologize to Central Park Five? They've been exonerated. You have people on both sides of that. They admitted their guilt. If you look at Linda Fairstein and if you look at some of the prosecutors, uh, they think that the city should never have settled that case. So we'll leave it at that. Joining me now is Yusuf Salam, one of the exonerated five, candidate for New York City Council and author of Better Not Bitter, The Power of Hope and Living on Purpose. It's so great to see you. Thank you for having me. So I have to tell you, I'm a couple years older than you, and I had just moved back to New York when um, the your case began and watched it every day and was severely traumatized mm -hmm. by it. Um, not anywhere close, obviously, to you guys. But I was a teenager, too. And what that case told me was that it was not safe to be a black teenager in New York. I was terrified as a result of that. And everyone I knew was, too. Um, and so I just, you know, very, very curious as to how it felt for you in particular 
having been through what you were and having that man want you dead, want you to be killed by the state of New York, to watch him have to face the criminal justice system today. How did you feel? You know, 34 years ago, I wasn't afforded the presumption of innocence. They looked at the color of my skin and judged me by it. They never looked at the content of my character. In America, they say that you're innocent until proven guilty, but rather for the black and brown community, they look at you and say, you are guilty, guilty, guilty. And I look at what happened today, and it was a moment for me. It was a moment because here we are on the cusp of, can I go from calling it the criminal system of injustice, which everyone knows me as calling it, back to calling it the criminal justice system? This moment is a moment, I'm sure, when I think about Dr. King, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I get the opportunity to be front and center with all of my lived experiences. And it's a bittersweet moment, though, at yeah. the same time. You know, it's, 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 you know, when I think about the rhetoric that's out there when Donald Trump says, you know, if they could do this to me, you know, none of us are safe. Come on. We live in two different worlds. And yeah. of course, people take my words and they bend it and try to attribute it to other people and other groups. And no, I'm talking about Donald Trump and I'm talking about the people who use privilege as a weapon. And for me, as a member of the black and brown community and hopefully as a representative of our community, I know far too well all of the lows that we've been in, all of the places that we've been pushed into, the margins of life. And now here we are at the opportunity to say, well, we're supposed to be living. In fact, we're supposed to be thriving. God gave us a birthright to say we are supposed to be here and therefore here we are. Yeah. I mean, and the, the fact that, you know, he talked about Linda Fairstein. I mean, this is the irony and sort of the karmic irony that it is a black D.A. that Donald Trump has to face um, and that he is getting the full. You know, he's being afforded all of the full protections of the law is something. But I, I, I have to talk about this because you are running um, for district guide. This is the map. It's too small for me to really read it. I'm going to have to squint and look at it. Um, but you took the, the thing that had to have been one of the most painful things in your life. We're going to put it on screen, but this is it. I'm holding it in my hand. This is your ad yes. that you have created. There it is on screen that mimics the ad he created that called for your death. Oh, yeah. And you've turned it into a campaign ad. Absolutely. For your campaign. Why? Absolutely. You know, people need hope. They don't necessarily need to just look at my story and say, wow, great move. No, they need to understand we absolutely can resuscitate our lives. When you look at the Harlems of the world and you walk around and you see what? You see hopelessness. You see sleeping giants. You see people who have said, you know what? I don't even want to participate. But they don't realize yet that non-participation is participation. I heard Eric Thomas say, you have to recycle the pain. You know, you're going to go through things in life. Might as well get something out of it. Here I get the opportunity to take all of the things that I've lived through and rather just going through it, I grow through it. And I think that I, with the light that I have been given, can shine the way forward. That's why I'm running for city council. Yeah. yeah. When is the race? The race is June 27th. Okay. I'm excited. Yeah. Folks are, you know, it's it, for me, it's not politics as usual, right? Yeah. It's not business as usual. This is my first entry into the political sphere. Yeah. But at the same time, I've been watching. I've been gathering information. I've understood the people who have been closest to the pain. Why? Because I've been in pain. Mm -hmm. And now we have to have a seat at the table. So it's no longer enough for us to march, at, in, in, march in the streets. 
for justice. We now have to have someone who is advocating for us in the halls of power that can ensure that their voices are carried and echoed and echoed and echoed. Uh, I I, um, am amazed by you, um, by your grace, um, your ability to survive and thrive. I wish you all the best. Harlem would be so lucky. Thank you. Dr. Yusuf Salam. I'm going to give you your honorific too. Dr. Yusuf Salam. God bless. Thank you. Best of luck. All right. Thank you. And Republican lawmakers, meanwhile, in Tennessee. Ooh, speaking of protest and hmm, try, they're trying to expel three of their Democratic colleagues for taking part in a peaceful protest against gun violence. We'll talk with two of those Democratic lawmakers next. You know, if there's one thing about January 6th, it is the distortive effect that it had on how we understand protest. The First Amendment gives us the right to protest. And even when it's loud and angry, protest is not just allowed. It is a fundamental component of our democracy. America's anti-war protests, the 2018 Women's March, the Black Lives Matter and civil rights movements, all are almost universally viewed as righteous uses of the First Amendment. Had those stop the steal Trump supporters just protested outside the Capitol on January 6th? We wouldn't be having an investigation or even a conversation about an insurrection. What you see here, this wasn't a protest. It was an anti-democratic faction seeking to keep Trump in power by forcing their way inside the Capitol, assaulting police and hunting lawmakers, including the vice president, with the intent with the intent to intimidate or kill them. That was the insurrection. But because Republicans going to Republican, the party that backed the insurrection is now spinning any protest against their policies as insurrection. They are weaponizing the word to distort the concept of peaceful protest. In Tennessee, students have been rallying for gun reform every day since last week's mass shooting at a Nashville school. On Thursday, hundreds of children, students and parents gathered at the Tennessee Capitol to demand gun safety laws that could literally keep them alive. Three Democratic lawmakers stood in solidarity with the youth, bringing a House session to a halt during the protests. Today, on the 55th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in Memphis, Tennessee, by gunfire, the people of that very state are demanding life over guns. But in an extraordinary and anti-democratic move, the Republican majority is moving to expel those three House members for supporting the students who were marching for their lives, calling them insurrectionists. Joining me now are two of those Democratic lawmakers, State Representatives Justin Jones of Nashville and Gloria Johnson of Knoxville. Thank you both for being here. I do want to start with you, Representative Jones. The Speaker of the House in Tennessee called the the protest by these kids at least equivalent, maybe worse than the January 6th insurrection. Outrageous. Your thoughts. I mean, I think that the Speaker of the House, and and thank you so much for having us, uh, Ms. Reed. Um, I think that the Speaker of the House owes these young people and their families, the mothers and grandparents who joined them, an apology um, because his his words were insulting to a grieving community. I I represent um, a a part of Nashville. This happened, this mass shooting happened here in Nashville. And rather than responding in compassion, he responded by demonizing these young people who simply were saying that we want to live. We don't want kids shot um, in elementary schools, that this is preventable and that um, we should act. And instead of listening to these young people and encouraging them and comforting them, the speaker um, incited um, 
hatred against them and try to portray them as violent. And that is shameful. Uh, those, these marches were, 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 were epic. I mean, it reminded me of March for Our Lives uh, in Florida. And, and, you know, Representative Johnson, the, there's, a, there's a Republican state representative named William Lamberth who asked protesters, these kids who were out there just trying to survive, you know, getting through high school alive, quote, is there a firearm out there that you're comfortable being shot with? He asked rhetorically, please show me which one it is. Uh, it is shocking to me that, that that is the kind of rhetoric that's happening in your state, your House of Representatives, and that it is you all that they're trying to expel. Do you expect this vote to actually be taken to expel you? You know, I think I think that it likely will. I mean, they have not demonstrated any understanding. They can't read the room. They haven't demonstrated any understanding. They haven't until I don't know if he even looked kids in the eye when he asked that question of them. But when they walked into the chamber past all these families that we had we spoke with, I talked to moms that morning who would drop their kids off and were so worried about were they going to be able to pick their kids up and would they be safe? And they didn't even look them in the eye. They didn't have a conversation. They didn't listen to them. And, and it's remarkable how they treat people. And we see that every single day. And the way they treated these folks who were afraid for their lives. I'm, I'm a teacher. I was at a school. We had a school shooting and lost a student. I've seen the trauma and the terror in children's faces. Yeah. I don't know how you cannot listen to these people who are concerned. And, and Representative Jones, it, there's an incident, I'm going to show it here, and I'm just going to let, let you talk over it, that it even appears that one of your colleagues physically shoved you, it had physical contact with you. Can you just explain what happened? Uh, last night on the House floor was a very sad day for Tennessee. Um, our colleagues um, in, the, in a partisan manner, the first um, completely partisan vote for uh, expulsion, um, voted to begin the process of expelling us. And as I was recording the gallery, as they cleared the media and the um, people who were gathered in the gallery, they, they, the speaker ordered them cleared. I was recording it, and my colleague, Representative Justin Lafferty, um, pushed me and, and took my cell phone. Um, and acted in a disorderly way, but he is not being uh, threatened with expulsion. Instead, we three lawmakers who simply were saying that we stand with our constituents um, as they cry out and, and, and plead for us to take action on kids being killed in schools, we're being threatened with, expel uh, with being expelled for standing and doing our jobs as legislators, just to listen to the grief of our people and to act on it. And, and last thing to you, Representative Johnson, have there been incidents that I understand have been like lascivious, like frightening incidents of a sexual nature for which there have been no attempts to expel members, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, we've had we've had members pee in each other's office chairs. We've had member. We have a child molester. We had a child molester on the House floor for years. I brought. He was admitted child molester. I brought an expulsion for him. They had him chairing an education committee. He was a teacher and. I basketball coach that sexually abused three 14 year olds and and we tried to expel him and they said well you know his his voters knew and they elected him so Lord we can't Jesus. overturn what they wanted uh, unbelievable well please come back because we want to know what happens with your cases tennessee state representatives justin jones and gloria johnson we will be paying attention to what happens with you and these students thank you all very much and that is tonight's readout
Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.